Okay, where's my slide? Huh? Yeah? Ah, okay, yeah, there it is. Just wanted everybody to know that the topic today is humility, and the topic next week is going to be humility because it's such a big subject and it's such a misunderstood subject, and it's the kind of thing that really in our culture, when you hear, uh, <laughs> when you hear, oh, they're going to be teaching about humility, there's, there's this tendency initially to sort of go, eh, meh, yeah, meh, humility, big deal. That doesn't sound like that's too exciting. And today may not be exciting, but my purpose today, because this isn't a hallelujah sermon. Tomorrow, next, next Sunday will be a hallelujah sermon. But, uh, but today, it's basically to try and sell you on the idea of humility being a good thing. Trying to clarify what it really is and make the point that it's actually something we want. It's actually something that we need in our lives. And so uh, let's, let's stay and read a couple of passages of Scripture. The, uh, these are two different colors, aren't they? Yeah. Wh which one do you like the best? That one? Okay, start tithing. And both of these will look like that. There it is, because <laughs> this one's a rental, and the idea is, do we want, or do we want to go back to, just saying, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And then a passage from 1 Peter. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would, that we would not ignore your word as it goes forth, that we would give it the honor and the, and that, that is due it, and that we would find life as we find it, Lord God. Uh, I pray that you would change our way of thinking today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. How many of you noticed that when we read the passage from Galatians, we did not read the word humility? y'all notice that or are you just being humble? <laughs> okay. Uh, we didn't, the, the word literally is, is gentleness, but the, uh, the implication is meekness and, and humility. Uh, it's interesting that most of the modern translations, which tend to be uh, dynamic equivalents, that means they try and transfer thought for thought rather than specific word for word, use the word gentleness, some of the older translations, which tend to want to go with word for word, use meekness and humility and, and things like that. But that, that, that is the concept. I like what uh, Eugene Peterson does with this. He doesn't try to describe it in one word, but he, he describes the concept 
this way. Not needing to force your way in life. Pretty cool idea? Yeah. If you, if some of you will remember several weeks ago when I, was, when I was talking about what a good racquetball player I am. Uh, <laughs> in all humility. <laughs> that I was talking about, uh, and you know, and I, and I, I, I actually kind of know where I fit in, in the racquetball hierarchy. I, I just stay off the court with those guys who are going to mop me up. But uh, the... Uh, there was a big change that came in my game when I began to learn to let the game come to me rather than try and chase after it a lot. I, you, I, it was such a startling point. I know most of you have meditated on that muchly since it was given. And uh, that's kind of the same thing here with life. I mean, li- life. I think that's, that's pretty much the concept that, he is, that, he's talking about, that he's talking about here. The term is actually a, a two-edged sword because... Literally, it means low, to get low. And one side of the sword is to be brought low. That's not humility, that is humiliation. The other side of the sword is to willingly bring yourself low. Now that, that is humility, and there's, there's a difference, a big difference there. And we often get those things muddied or we get them confused. But the idea of lowering ourselves is not the same thing as being put low. In, in, in the biblical New Testament sense of the word, clearly the second of these is the option that's being talked about. Jesus told a parable. Well, I guess, was it a parable? Uh, anyway, he gave some instruction where he said, if you go to a feast, he says, don't go and get there early and select the best seat to go sit in because the person who's giving the feast may come in and have to go up to you and say, <clears throat> excuse me, very, I'm, I'm sorry, but we've got someone more important than you who's here, and they need this seat. Go find another one. And then you will be put low. Said, so, But if you put yourself low, you, go, you get there, and you take the lowest seat, then the person who is, who is giving the feast will have to come to you and say, oh, no, 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 no. You, you deserve a much better seat than this. Let's lift you up and put you somewhere higher. That's how Jesus said we should live our lives in this. Uh, the concept is, we read it in 1 Peter uh, 5, 6. It says, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Because if you lift yourself up, he will have to put you low. But if you lower yourself, then he will lift you up. Also, Jesus showed us this when he, uh, when he washed his dis- disciples' feet. Actually, he showed us this throughout his entire life, but this sort of encapsulated the whole thing. And I, I love this picture. This one's my favorite picture of, uh, of all of the ones of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Because uh, I, I think the reason why is because I love the expression on the guys' faces so much. Peter's got this, just this anguish expression that, oh my goodness, he's washing my feet and you can see it much better in the more expensive projector over here uh, than, than you can in that one and then uh, it's pretty clear that uh, John is uh, I think the one looking over his shoulder and he's kind of got this expression that's going let me sh- uh, let me let me learn how to do that I'm watching what he's doing because this is the guy I want to follow uh, and then the guy on the uh, total opposite side the one who's kind of leaning down taking his sandal off as if to say I'm next uh, and has a money bag at his shoulder, uh, you know, that, that would be, that'd be Judas. So I, I, like the, I like the way that that's done. But this was an incredible 
This was an incredible act of humiliation that Jesus did here in terms of the society and culture that he lived in. And we'll talk about that a whole lot more next week. But Jesus, when he got through, said, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, because that's what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have done this, you need to do it for each other because I've set you an example. This is the example. The example is to lower yourself for the benefit of others. And so here's a working definition of humility. And if you've got your, your little uh, sheet from the bulletin, you've already got it on there. Uh, I actually got this from uh, a book by John Dixon called Humilitas, The Lost Key to Life, Love, and Leadership. But I thought his definition was so great that, yeah, I'll, I'll steal it, uh, but I'll give him credit for it. Humility is the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. More simply, you could say a humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in service of others. Not forcing his or her way through life, but holding power in service to others. I want to I briefly look at seven facts about humility today. And like I said, I'm trying to sell you on the topic here. The first fact is humility presupposes your dignity. You can't lower yourself if you're the lowest one. In order to lower yourself, you already you have to be at a position where you're above somebody. You're above some situation. And in order to make that choice that I'm, gonna, that I'm going to be humble, I'm going to act in a humble way in this situation, it presupposes that you're already up somewhere. That's what it does. Now, you know, you can get a little too far with that, and we do have a tendency to get a little too far with that. But... We get so confused and, and muddled about this humility thing, we, we, uh, we confuse it with having low self-esteem. And it's not that at all. In fact, it's impossible to have low self-esteem and be humble at the same time. I thought that was an excellent point. It's impossible to have low self-esteem and be humble at the same time. If you've got, you got low self-esteem, then... All you've got is low self-esteem. But if you have a reasonable understanding of who you are and what you are and what God has given you to do, then, well, uh, Paul says this over in Romans 12, 3. By the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. you there, are, there are things you can do well. There are things that you know that I don't know. The youngest person in here knows some things I don't know. And knows some things you don't know either. Now, I may know a few things they don't know, but, you know, it, it, it actually goes both ways. And, and to deny the gifts that God has given to you, and, you know, we tend to look at the flashy ones. We tend to look at the, uh, the athletic ability. We tend to look at the musical ability. We tend to look at the performance kind of gifts that people have. Uh, that's just the very little tip of the iceberg in terms of the gifts that have been given to people. You know, some, some you know, if you, can, if you can sing like, where did the term sing like a bird come from? I mean, 
Birds? Yeah, okay. But I just, you know, I just don't. Anyway, you can sing beautifully and wonderfully and just thrill people with your voice, but you can't cook and everybody was like you, the world would starve. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, some people, some people have, have, have the gift to be able to work with their hands, do things with their hands. Uh, Mike Dennison is a marvelous mechanic. You know, if I went to Mike Dennison and I said, man, my car is broken, and he went, you know what? Your car is broken, but you're just as good at this as I am. My car would stay broken. Because I'm not just as good at this as he is. And there, there are things in your life that God has given you, and you, just, and you need to have a sober understanding that there are things that you can do for the benefit of others. There are opportunities. So lower, use your resources to help others. Humility is also social. And this may, uh, that may seem like kind of a strange thing, but think about it for a minute, because we don't normally think of humility as being social. We tend to think of humility as having something to do with the way I think about me. But it's not. Humility is more about how I treat others than how I think about myself. And so you can't have humility without others. You know, if you, if you live in a, in a cave somewhere and it's just you, it's impossible to be humble. You're the greatest in the cave. You're also the worst in the cave. Humility is, is, a, is a social act. There's a story, I don't know if it's... Uh, and, and, you know, we're not always talking necessarily about, you know, helping people move or something like that, although that would be great too. But uh, sometimes it's... it's Holding your power in abeyance for the benefit of others. Uh, there's a story, it may be apocryphal, but I've read it actually several places, so I think it's probably true. In the mid-30s, Detroit, Michigan, uh, the, the story of uh, three young men who got on a, on a bus, a uh, transit bus, and uh, there, was a, there was a lone man sitting in the back, and they decided they'd go mess with him. And so they, they go back, and they begin to... Uh, insult this guy they're trying to get a rise out of him and and he's just not he's just not going there and so they turn the heat up a little bit and try and prob him a little more prob him is that a word it is when you're stuffed up pro uh anyway they're they're messing with him you see and he's still uh, and it, there's nothing more aggravating than trying to mess with somebody and they won't rise to it i mean you know that that'll get boring after a while but anyway they they carried on and uh, he, still wouldn't, he still wouldn't rise to it. They finally got to the place where he was ready to get off the bus. And when he, when he got to his stop, the guy stands up. And he's actually considerably bigger than they thought he was when he was sitting down. And he handed him a business card, walked off the bus. Business card had three words on it. Joe Lewis Boxer. <laughs> World heavyweight champion from 1937 to 1949. Yeah, <laughs> considered by many to be the greatest boxer of all time. Could have wiped that bus up with those little boys, you know, but didn't. That's an act of humility. 
Anti-humility would be to kind of go, oh, you want some of me? Come on. You know, I'll take all three of you. But humility was to kind of go, ah, no, you don't want any of me, and you're just too dumb to know it. (laughs) And so I'm fine with that. This was uh, a man of immense power who chose to hold his power for the benefit of others so that those young men might live. (laughs) Humility is logical. You are not self-sufficient. You do not have everything that you need in and of yourself. You do not have all of the knowledge that you need to be able... God alone holds that distinction. He is the only one who is completely and totally self-sufficient. Another story, briefly, speaking of boxers, Muhammad Ali, and this one, this one I'm sure is a true story because it's just so true. Uh, <laughs> but I've read it several times too. Ali's flying on a plane, and, uh, and the captain comes on and says, uh, everyone buckle your seatbelts, we're getting ready to hit some severe turbulence. Now, normally when the captain comes on and says, buckle your seatbelts, we might be hitting a little turbulence. That's bad enough so what what severe turbulence was going to be good grief who knows but uh the uh, uh, attendant is walking down the plane and she notices up in first class and mr ali does not have his seatbelt buckle very very clearly and so she goes up to him how many of you've heard this oh good she goes up to him and she says uh the, the captain made the announcement that you have to buckle your seatbelt because we're getting ready to hit some severe turbulence to which ali shot back superman don't need no seatbelt to which she shot back, Superman don't need no plane. <laughs> they both needed some English lessons. But Superman doesn't need a plane, doesn't need a pilot to, to, to fly it, doesn't need an attendant to bring, uh, to bring food, doesn't need a mechanic on the ground to keep it running, doesn't need somebody in the tower to keep it from running into things. We need others. We just simply do. So it's logical. It only makes sense that I'm not self-sufficient. There are things where, where I need help, and there are areas where I should help others, where I should lower myself to help others. If you have an area of expertise, rather than making you think, because we have a tendency, if we're experts in one area, we have a tendency to extrapolate that into other areas. You know, if I'm good at math, then I must be good at just about everything. You know? If I, if I know a lot about uh, Civil War history, then I probably know a lot about just about anything that there is to know. So, and we, we do. We have, that, we have that tendency to feel that way, but it should be just the opposite. How many of you are experts at something? Okay, we've got... Like eight experts here in the room. Uh, the truth of the matter is, every one of you are experts at something. You know more about something than anybody else because you know more about your life than anybody else. I mean, you know, the history of your life, I, I don't know much about it. And even those who are close to you don't know as much as you know. So, you know, you're an expert. Now, have you ever had anybody come up to you and talk to you and tell you 
what it was you were thinking? Were they right? Rarely were they right because they don't know this stuff. You're the one who knows it. Now that should, but that should, that should clue us in to the fact that if I'm an expert in this area and everybody else in the world knows less about it than I do, then there might be some other areas out there that I don't know too much about. There might be some areas out there where I'm not as competent, I'm not as proficient as I think that I am. In the last 25 years, there have been two big brouhaha's about uh, when the Lord was going to come back, the day the Lord was going to come back, His return. Uh, uh, the first was back in 1988, a guy named Edward, uh, Edwin Wisenhunt, and I don't remember the date exactly. It was 1988. It was in the fall, something like that. And then uh, when was the uh, Harold Camping guy? Was that? Huh? May 20th. What year? 2011? It was after the Giants had won their first World Series in, in three years. Two out of three. Okay, just wanted to be sure about that. Uh, you know what those guys, uh, what, what their field of expertise was? They were, both, uh, they were both civil engineers. Now, if God was going to tell somebody when he's coming back, he ain't telling a civil engineer. <laughs> okay, I know why that laughter was that, was that big. Uh, but we have this tendency to think that because I can figure things out, that, you know, I'm, I'm an expert in certain fields. We do not have a problem in this country really with low self-esteem. At least men don't. I mean, that's for sure. Cornell University surveyed one million high school seniors to find out how they viewed themselves. And they discovered some interesting results. They discovered that out of one million high school seniors that 70% of them considered themselves to be above average. And while that's, you know, I mean, I, I, okay, that's probably within the statistical margin of error. Uh, only 2% consider themselves to be below average. That meant that 98% of all of these seniors were average or above. That's an interesting looking bell curve. It gets even better when they ask them about their ability to get along with others. 100% were above average in their ability <laughs> to get along with others. 60% were in the top 10. But only 25% were in the top 1% of their ability to get along with others. Now, you might think, oh, well, these are just kids. They're just high school kids. What do they know? Da, da, da. They don't know themselves yet, blah, blah, blah. They also did a, uh, a survey of college professors. Guess what percentage of college professors feel like they're doing an above average job? A mere 94%. We have a tendency to overestimate our sufficiency. But even if you have incredible knowledge, even if you really are gifted far beyond any of those around you, you, you still aren't close to being able to pass 
the quiz that God gave to Job over in Job 38, 41. How many of you have read the book of Job? Yeah, a number of you have. And, and, you know, and Job and his friends are there, and they're, just, they're, they're saying all these clever and, and wise things back and forth to each other. And, and then God shows up. And he starts asking questions that are just downright not fair. You know, who knows where the storehouses of the snows and the winds are? Who knows who was there when he cast the stars into space and when he created the sea creatures? And who was there when he set the universe into motion? You know, those questions just aren't fair. God knows the answer to them, though. He's the only one who is self-sufficient. So it's logical to be humble. It's logical to realize, hey, I don't know everything. Humility is also beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. It beautifies those who have it. One of these guys is beautiful and one isn't. Both staunch nationalists, both important to their country, one of them evil and reviled, the one in the hat, one of them gentle. How many of you know who this guy is? We had one person in the early service who knew who this guy was. <laughs> Sir Ed, yes, I do know. I real, that's the clue. That's the clue. All right, does anybody here know who Sir Ed is? Okay, I heard that. I, I heard it. Somebody was, yeah, Edmund, Edmund Hillary. Does anybody know what Edmund Hillary did? Yeah, all right. You guys are a lot brighter than the first service. At least this side of the room is a lot brighter than the first service. <laughs> Sir Edmund Hillary was the first guy to climb Mount Everest. You know, and we may think, oh, big deal. Climb Mount Everest, you know. Wait a minute, guys. 1953, the, uh, the earth had existed for thousands of years. The first person to set foot on the top of the earth was this man. And he only had one other person with him, um, uh, his guide uh, uh, from the Shepherd tribe, whose name I can't pronounce, so he's Shepherd guy. Uh, but, and, and the equipment that they had in those days, I mean, this was like, this was like the equivalent of going into space being the first guy in space without a rocket is what, is what this was. This was a big deal. Happened in 1953. He was knighted in 1953 in the British Empire. In uh, uh, 1985, he was, uh, uh, became New Zealand's high commissioner. He was, he was from New Zealand. Uh, high commissioner to India, Nepal, and Bangladesh in 1995. Received the order of the Garter, which is a really strange-sounding thing. But it's the highest order in the British Empire. Only 24 people can have it at a time. So somebody's got to die before you get it. it, it they, don't, they don't just hand those things out. Uh, spent most of his life after doing this, establishing the Himalayan Trust. Uh, in 1960, he began to establish that, building hospitals and, and, uh, and schools and airfields and things for the Shepras, for the Shepra tribe. Uh, one of the things about Sir Edmund Hillary that is outstanding is his humility in fact they weren't really able to get from him the information that he was actually the first one to stand on top of Everest uh, his shepherd guide finally Sir Edmund 
released him to be able to, to tell everybody else. This was like in the, in the 80s, so this was 30 years after it happened, that, uh, that he had actually gotten injured. And Sir Edmund had, had, to, had to pull him up the last 20 or 30 yards to the top, to the top of the mountain. So, yeah, you know, this guy, this guy had a real good sense of who he, who he was, but a beautiful humility about him. There's a story about him. Uh, one of his many trips back to the Himalayas, there was a group of tourists who recognized him. And so they, they were badgering him for a photo op, and he, said, yeah, he graciously consented to do that. They gave him a, uh, um, an ice pick to hold for the, for the photo op and everything. But while they were arranging the photo op, uh, this guy comes along who doesn't recognize him, and he goes over and schools Sir Edmund on the right way to hold an ice pick because he wasn't holding it properly. And, uh, and Sir Edmund, you know, just laughed it off, was very congenial about it, and, you know, uh, allowed himself to be instructed and go on with the picture, and the jerk goes on his way and, and walks on off. You know, when you hear that story about this man, this, this, this great man, it makes him more beautiful. You begin to think, wow, that is, that is cool. Now, who wants to be the, the guy coming along and schooling Sir Edmund on how to hold an ice pick? You know, no, I, I mean, when I said a jerk, yeah, that, that's, that's exactly what he was because he had this inflated sense of his, of his capabilities, and we don't admire those kind of people. We don't look at him and go, oh, boy, I would just want to be him. I just want to be her. How many of you know who, who, who this is? This is a real old guy. Okay, this one? Isaac Newton, yeah. And the other one's Galileo. Giants in the field of science. Both of them considered by different groups to be the father of modern science. In 1623, Galileo wrote, It was granted to me alone to discover all the new phenomena in the sky and nothing to anybody else. This is the truth which neither malice nor envy can suppress. In 1675, Newton wrote, If I have seen further, it's because I am standing on the shoulder of giants. Which of these guys would you like to go to five guys with? <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you, when you hear things like that, you know, the, the one who has this who, ha who has the, the humility in his life is attractive to us, is beautiful to us. Or the one who's got this level of arrogance repels us. Humility allows us to excel. It's not pride. You know, we tend to think that, you know, that pride's what gets us out there and, and, and pumps those juices and gets us going. No, uh, that's, that's, that's not it at all. G.K. Chesterton is, uh, well, no, actually, let me, let me back up before I get to him. Uh, over in James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What can you do if God doesn't give you any grace? Let, let me answer that succinctly. <laughs> that's about it. That's all you can do without the grace of God. And it says very plainly here, God stands in opposition to the proud. God actually sits himself against that proud. 
person and the pride in our lives. But when he finds a humble person, he gives grace to them. He helps them, helps them along. Chesterton, uh, as I was getting ready to quote a little bit earlier, says this, human pride is the engine of mediocrity. It fools us into believing that we have arrived, that we are complete, that there's little else to learn. Humility, by contrast, reminds us that we're small and incomplete and urges us on toward heights of artistic and scientific and societal endeavor. The guy whose, uh, whose book I took the definition from, uh, Dixon, he actually he does a lot of... Uh, seminars and stuff for businesses and uh, and he had a little section in the book a little blurb where he was talking about two types of people that tend to show up at seminars fairly regularly his business seminars and uh, I want to read his description of them and pay attention because you might recognize I don't know somebody else you might recognize elements of yourself in it and it's real important uh, the first one is, is a guy named Proud Peter. Every conference seems to have a Proud Peter. He's the guy in your organization who is moderately talented and charming, but whose years in the business have created an inflexibility when it comes to learning from others or implementing changes. His natural wit is able to point out the smallest difficulty with a new idea, and so he quickly convinces himself and sometimes others that the old way, his way, is probably best. He typically sits up in the back with his arms folded or behind his head, and throughout the talk, he offers quips to his buddies who politely smile. He never takes notes. That would be showing too much interest. But he is frequently the first to raise his hand during the Q&A. He might give the speaker some faint praise, but normally he just wants to pose a question designed to sound clever. Afterwards, in the staff debriefings, I imagine, he resists adopting any fresh insights. He's closed to new thoughts that aren't his own, and rarely submits himself to review or criticism. His pride impedes his progress. And then he talks about this gal named Humble Heather. She is no less competent than Peter and no less self-confident, but she has a keen awareness of what she doesn't know and can't do and that that far exceeds what she does know and can do. She's an attractive mix of will and intellectual gentleness she's not as popular as peter but she has more friends that's a nice line people trust her respect her and open up to her and because she's not at all intimidating despite enjoying relatively senior status in the organization colleagues feel free to question her over the years she has learned never to resent this some of her best ideas come in a flash of insight after someone queried the wisdom of her first suggestion at conferences, uh, Heather doesn't sit in the front or the back. She goes wherever her friends are. She takes notes. Heather follows the lecture so intently that the speaker uses her to, as a gauge to how well the material's going over. She smiles, frowns, concentrates, and laughs. She's just as likely as Peter to ask a public question, but her tone is different. She might look for clarification about something she didn't understand or, or just wonder aloud how the material applies to her specific situation. Her motivation is to arrive at the truth, and she usually gets there. Those who, when they are criticized or when they, somebody makes a suggestion or somebody says, 
I don't know if that's the best way to go about it. Those who take it personally, those who become defensive about it, they're very slow learners. But those who are able to take such questions and take such, such criticism and go, uh, and consider it, because it's not always right, but sometimes part of it is, sometimes all of it is, you know. Those people are seeking the truth, and they usually arrive at it, and they're very fast learners. Humility enables us to learn. Humility, very quickly, these last two, I don't have as much to say about them, but they're important, allows us to influence. See, when you care about people more than you care about yourself, they know that. They feel that. And when you look back on your life at that coach or that teacher or that captain or, or whatever that, that you, or that boss that you had who genuinely, truly cared about your advancement, genuinely, truly cared about you being able to, to succeed more than they cared about, you know, getting, climbing that ladder for themselves, if that person comes back into your life and says something to you, you're going to listen to it. They're going to have influence in your life because of the humility with which they approached you. But if it's somebody who you know only cares about what's in it for them and you're just one of the pawns that's getting pushed around the board to, so, that they can, so that they can take another step, you don't care what they think and you shouldn't because their thinking's all messed up. It's all wrong. Humility allows us to influence, have influence with others. And then finally, humility allows us to enjoy. Chesterton says, it's impossible without humility to enjoy anything. And I've certainly found that true in my own life. Uh, you know, I'm not... Uh, Preachers usually have trouble with this, big time. I, you know, I've, I've made the point several times before uh, about, you know, when I was in theater before I came to the Lord, I didn't like to go to theater because if somebody didn't do very well and I, all I could do is sit there and think, man, I can do that a lot better than they can. Or, or if they were doing it great, all I could do is sit there and hate them. <laughs> Preachers have a lot of those absolute same things, you know. They... Uh, uh, when you hear another preacher who's pretty good and everybody's staying awake, you know, <laughs> there's a tendency to kind of think, there's something wrong there. You know, uh, there's, uh, their doctrine's wrong. There's, there's something, I mean, you know, they're, they tell too many jokes. They, uh, j just something. Uh, but once you, once you begin to be able to just accept who you are, who the Lord's made you, what He's given you, then that frees you to begin to enjoy who everybody else is. What, what He's, I, I, I imagine musicians have, have some of that same, that same thing in them. And, and I discovered last night, uh, you know, for those of you who haven't heard, I, I uh, uh, just recently I did a play up in Nashville, and, and I really, it was a really good role, and I was really, I was really good in it. 
<laughs> well, I was. I was. But, okay. But I, I'm old enough now to understand that, you know, a lot of that's got to do with the role. And, and, and there was, I had a lot of help. I mean, it was a good director and all this stuff. And I was talking to, this, to a young lady who actually was the stage manager of it. We were talking about this other guy. Uh, in town named David Compton, who is a wonderful actor. And she, uh, and she made the, the comment to me that, oh, yeah, he's my favorite. He's, he's absolutely the best in, in this area. You know, and something inside of me kind of went, <laughs> so I realized it's not totally gone. You know, it's still there to some degree. But praise God, I can go watch David Compton and go, wow, that was good. That was, and you know what? Before I met Jesus, I couldn't do that. Before he came into my life, I couldn't enjoy necessarily what, what others could do and how well they could do it. And so he's, he's the tipping point. And next week, yeah, I, you know, I told Barbie, it's, it's a lot more fun to preach hallelujah sermon than it is a go home and think about this sermon. And this is a go home and think about this sermon. Next week will be the hallelujah sermon because next week we're going to talk about when humility changed the world because the world did not always look at humility the way that it does today. There was a time when, it, when humility wasn't beautiful. There was a time when, when humility didn't add influence into a person's life there was a time when it was absolutely despised and there was a specific point in history where all that changed and some of you may know where it probably is but if you don't come next week and I'll tell you and, and one other thing that I want to tell you about next week that's very specific to us today is why humility trumps tolerance God isn't interested in you being tolerant but he is absolutely, vitally interested in you being humble. And that's one of the big issues that the church has today. Is too much of one and not enough of another. I thought that was a well-turned phrase. Would you stand with me? With those who are going to pray with people, come forward. And I know this wasn't an emotional type, oh, I need to go to the altar kind of thing, but you came here today knowing if you needed something. And, and even if it wasn't an emotional type, maybe you came here today thinking you could handle it, and perhaps, perhaps the Holy Spirit spoke to you and said, no, you can't. I'm convinced that the main thing that keeps God from doing stuff for his people is his people's pride. They won't come to him and go, I need help here. I need help here. So the altar's open. We're going to worship for a few moments. If, you, if you've got something you need prayer for, if you're going through something, don't go through it alone. Don't even try it that way because that doesn't work. That doesn't work. You come. We'll pray with you. Oh, light of the world you step down into darkness open my eyes let me see beauty that makes this heart adore you hope of a life spent
Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ the one who came into the world not considering equality with God something to be grasped but humbled himself because we needed him because we needed what he could bring to us may that that same spirit may that same motivation come to the forefront in your life may it be a beautiful thing May it reflect His glory, and may you use the influence that it gives you to point people towards Him through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.